on uh, that day, which would be November the 8th, we uh, actually is voting for the Black Panther on that day. And I imagine it will start around 8, so we want to be there from 8 until, if that's what it takes. And we expected at least 8 or 900, maybe more, Negroes to be there on that day. It's Election Day, 1966. Mid-morning now, the polls have been open for hours, but black voters still haven't lost steam. It's not going unnoticed. So by mid-morning, they realize, oh, they're really showing up, they're really turning out, right? So that's when the intimidation started to increase as the day went on and they realized, oh, these people, they're, they're actually exercising their right to vote. There was this one black man, um, I want to say his name's Andrew Jones. He was known to not be one to back down for white supremacy. So it was almost like the, the white establishment knew, like, he's not going to back down, so we're not going to mess with him, right? And before he could even get out his car to go pick up the voters, a mob, a white mob, charged him and beating him over the head with pistols and, and, and bats and things of that nature. And even if you had the reputation of being the person that you don't mess with, when the white establishment realized how high turnout was on election day, no one was safe. One of the major leaders of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization was in Fort Deposit at the polling place. And Fort Deposit was like the center of white power. And he's in Fort Deposit where they leave the lights on all night long, except when he was there about to you know, picking up the ballots. And all of a sudden, all the lights went out and a gang of whites attacked him. And by, you know, the grace of whoever protects Lowndes County <laughs> freedom organizers, suddenly the lights went back on. And there was a guy with a gun at his head and they had to back off because somebody would see them. But white landowners were encouraging some Black voters to go to the polls, as long as they voted the way they were told. A Negro man said that in one polling place, some white men would open the curtains with their hand and look into the booth while the Negroes were voting. I mean, you're at the polls and up comes a truck, and these are people that you know who are sharecroppers, and they all go in together, and they get talked to later, and they said, yeah, he brought us in and said if we didn't vote Democratic, he'd kick us off the land. So SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and local organizers, and they had their work cut out for them. So we would just drive back and forth and on the back roads and the uh, paved roads just to make sure that nobody was going to blow up the Freedom House while everybody was gone. And that was that. Nobody got killed. Nobody got attacked. We made a show of force in Fort Deposit, which I think was very important. I think the power structure was just basically scared silly. This time on Panther, just what was that power structure scared silly of? Black Panther. 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 
The long-anticipated Freedom March from Selma to Alabama's capital of Montgomery finally gets underway. If I died, I didn't care because I was dying for a purpose. We were afraid, but I guess the purpose was greater than the fear. This is Panther, Blueprint for Black Power, from Reckon Radio. This is the seldom-told story of one of the most famous and notorious organizations in the Black Power movement and its origins in Lowndes County, Alabama. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. The one in Oakland started out when they heard about us. These people wanted to vote. They wanted to pull the lever for the Black Panther and then go on home. And this is what they did. We come a long ways, but we got a, a long ways to go. Politicians have been trying to roll back the franchise all across the country. Voter ID, early voting, even the number of polling sites have all come under assault. Because we want to live as decent human beings in America. There's this idea of how do we fully realize the power of the Black vote? And we can't do that if we align ourselves with the Democratic Party in Alabama, which is still the party of white supremacy. So the only viable alternative for for voters here in Lowndes County was, you know, we're going to start our own political party. That's Regina Moore, a political science professor at Alabama State University. And that's where we last left off in our story. SNCC has come to town, and the Lowndes County Christian Movement, the LCCM, is building momentum. The road to that decision was not a smooth one. As you can hear in those clips, the white power structure was not keen on change in 1966. It was dangerous, potentially deadly dangerous, for these Black folks to organize a new political party and do it openly. They got started by holding mass meetings where everybody came together to talk about what exactly needed to happen and how to make it happen. You heard about the first meeting in our last episode. 27 people came to that one. Lillian McGill was among them. And that Sunday night we met at the church, Mount Gilead Baptist Church up there. You know, you can be so afraid that you don't know you're shaking. But there come a time you said enough is enough, and that was it. Think about it. Even just the act of gathering was dangerous. And if your white boss found out, mm-mm, you could lose your job. Or worse, Mary Mays remembers. We would go to the mass meeting to have strategy, to find out what we were going to do, and also what we had to do to go get registered to vote. I attended most of all the uh, mass meetings, uh, and we did have an incident where somebody burned one of the churches down in Colorado. So they were afraid to have the mass meeting at their churches. But Mount was not afraid. Ed King was a teacher in Lowndes, and he was part of those early meetings, too. We still were a little shaky because uh, being the first church, you know, having a type of a meeting, we didn't feel very comfortable, but we went through with it. But uh, down the line, we were punished for it. The old deacons before our time had bought the land that that school was on, but they didn't get any deeds for it. And they told us that we had to pay for the land in order to maintain it. So we had to pay for the land, and at that time we got the deeds for the land. That's what we paid again. I mean, we paid a second time. And 
everybody there knew just how dangerous it was. Mary Mays can speak to how high the nerves ran. It was very scary. Sometimes even at the um, <laughs> the mass meeting, if we heard a noise, everybody was jumping, you know, to make sure. When Mount Gilead, before we would have the meeting, they would have the um, somebody to go up under the church to make sure no bombs were there or have somebody to drive around the church to make sure it was safe to be there. And we would, we would go as far as for a deposit to um, have a mass meeting. For Lillian McGill, the threat of violence was just a fact of life. She wasn't going to let it stop her, though, not one bit. We didn't have time for that. We had time to try to survive, for our children to survive. Those children were left here many a night while we went to the mass meeting, but they knew how to shoot a gun. And if anything come up here unexpected that didn't suppose to be here, we left them wood to tear it up. And if we didn't make it, when they got 18, they were supposed to go register to vote. They were always instilled with it. That's all we would tell our children. You don't fright because something didn't go wrong the first time. Now, Eunice, this is an important time to remind ourselves of one of the most humbling aspects of this movement. These people weren't just activists, a word that's overused, frankly. They still lived their lives, raised their children, cooked supper, got their hair did, <laughs> all while fighting for their rights. That's true, Roy. But those everyday activities were a crucial part of the movement, too. Like, take Mary May's mother, the woman who feared for her children's safety when they joined the marchers from Selma to Montgomery. Well, she played an integral role in the SNCC organizers day to day. For the young men that was involved, like Bob Mann, Stokely Carmichael, Scotty B, a lot of them came to my mama's house. She would cook for them. And a lot of the guys would come there and eat. I mean, she loved doing that. She said if she could help any kind of way, you know, to get the movement going on, that's what she wanted to be a part of. People got involved any way they could, and every way they did was vital. Here's how Regina Moore's grandmother contributed. Her name is Maddie Lee Moore, and so she was actively involved in some of the organizing efforts for voter registration. But in addition to that, she was a beautician. So she had a hair salon in the back of my grandparents' home. And so that hair salon became like the beauty shop talk about what was going on. A lot of Black women came to her to get their hair done, right? And so while she's doing hair, she's using that as an opportunity to tell them, like, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this mass meeting? Did you hear about this particular activity? And so the beauty shop became like the, the spot for her to, to help spread the word for these efforts. Every facet of life was policed by the white folks in power. Black residents pushed back whenever and however they could. Here's Ed King again. I didn't feel comfortable in teaching school and not being a registered voter, a second-class citizen. That bothered me. And I was willing to uh, do whatever I could to be sure to become a registered voter. I wasn't afraid. I, <laughs> they told me I was going to get fired. I said, well, I may get fired. I said, but uh, I feel like there are certain things that uh, we have a, a right to do. I asked the superintendent for a transfer, and she told me to come to her office. I said, oh, I know this is it now. I said, she's going to fire me now. <laughs> so I went by office that evening when I got off work, and she, she said, uh, you asked me for a transfer to the new school, which is closer to you, and I will transfer you. I said, I sure appreciate that. She said, uh, 
I would have made you prosper at that school, but uh, you've been participating in those uh, mass meetings. Age wasn't a factor either. Viola Bradford would later go on to become a journalist. She's the one who covered that fateful election day back in 1966. But even when she was still in high school, she would make sure word of what went on at the mass meetings got around to those who couldn't go. Nobody at my school, counselors, teachers, nobody was helping me get into college. Here I'm an honor student, perfect attendance, nobody was helping me. Because I was going to mass meetings every Monday night as a freedom singer and still doing my work. And I was very into the community, doing a whole lot of stuff, newspaper, voter registration. And um, I know the teachers would ask me on Tuesday morning, what happened at the mass meeting last night? They put me out in the hallway. And I would say, you should have been there. But teachers wouldn't go, you know, they thought they'd lose their jobs. So I ended up going to the mass meetings and all of that. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be a journalism major when I finish. All those SNCC organizers needed a place to lay their heads. Patty Mae McDonald and her family offered up a house for them to stay in. Around town, Black folks called it the Freedom House. Willie James, one of Patty Mae's kids, was just a child back then. And my mom said she was renting the house to Stokely Carmichael and the rest of them, she wasn't. They never paid for a dime. That was a graceful lot. So the house that the Stokely, was, uh, they were staying in, we made the living room a library. And I think I was 10. And so I had a piece of scrap wood and some paint, so I put Freedom Library on it. But that generosity put the McDonald family in danger. Like real danger. Here's Shirley, another one of Patty Mae's kids. I was five when they shot into our home. I remember pointing at the bullet holes, and I remember hearing the gunshots that night. But that's all I can remember. I remember hearing the gunshots, and I remember my mom standing, looking at me with her arm folded, with her hand up under her chin, and I was pointing at one of the bullet holes. And if I'm not mistaken, the FBI's came out of New York down here because when nobody here do nothing. Just for giving these college-age kids a place to sleep, the McDonald's got their home shot up. Mary Mays' family saw bullets, too. The white men guys would ride around with guns in the back of their trucks. And then sometimes they would just come on 23, just shooting. So sometimes we would hear the gunfires and my mama would tell us to get out of bed and we would have to lay on the floor until they stopped shooting because they wanted to scare us. We would just hear the gunshots and we ran for cover, get up under bed, get out of bed and get under bed so the bullet wouldn't hit you. And just for trying to register to vote, other Lowndes County families got kicked out of hearth and home. We had a lot of people here in Lowndes County that were sharecroppers. And when they decided that they wanted to walk with Dr. King or they were going to stand up for their rights, the white people told them if they were going to be a part of that, they had to get off their uh, land. Most of these people were sharecroppers. So those who registered to vote ended up being thrown off the land. And that's how they came up with Tent City. There were just tents on this land. And that's it. As far as the eye could see, there was just a lot of tents on this land and families living in these tents. That's right, tents. White landlords held people's homes hostage. Registered to vote? You can't live here anymore. But that didn't stop the movement either. Didn't stop Black folks in Lowndes County. That's where Tent City came in. Here's Mary Mays again. 
Tent City play a vital part. And it was even talked about in Washington how uh, the sharecroppers were thrown off their land because they voted, you know, and they had nowhere to go. But Ms. Viola Smith volunteered to let them use her land. And some of them stayed on there as, as long as two to three years yeah. until they acquired an acre of land. But she never charged rent, you know. She did that out of the goodness of her heart. And we had a few older ladies during that time that was very brave, and they stood up, too, for the movement. Because I know you probably see the, a landmark on 80 down the street. Um, that Her name was Miss Rosa Steele, and she should have been in her 80s by then, but she was feisty, and, I mean, she said, you all can stay on my land. She was not afraid of getting hurt. Put that big piece down It was interesting, almost unbelievable, because I couldn't imagine a tent having a stove in it, you know, and then the ground, it had even flooring. It was built like a room. They had beds in there, you know, it was it was comfortable, just like a house. And that's what was most amazing to me. But yeah, I had friends over there. We would go visit them and we would stay outside and play. So I went there Christmas Eve and it was a woman. I know she had at least five kids. And it was just a tent. Dirt was the floor. And what I remember, after talking to her, she was very happy because she was just with her children. I don't think she could buy them anything. That was sad. The oldest boy, he went out and got a twig from somewhere and had a little red ribbon, and he tied a bow, and he told me that this is their Christmas tree. And I'll never forget that. But I spent the evening there, and we were talking, and the kids were happy, so... That's what I remember about Tent City more than anything else. Those kids might have been happy, but Tent City was no place to make a life. And SNCC was well aware of the consequences of what they were advocating for, registering Black folks in Lowndes County to vote. And that helped to inform just how everybody made decisions. It was anything but top down. These difficult choices started and ended with the people of Lowndes. Here's Joanne Mance again. So the, the choices of making decisions and SNCC becoming SNCC, SNCC said that we will stay with communities and let the communities decide what issues they would want to change within that community. And when they make the decision, we will stand with that decision that they make. Now, a lot of times it, it meant some of them would not make it home alive, make it out. Some of them would be jailed. You never knew exactly the end results of some of the things that would happen as a result of you making a commitment. They were young people, energetic. Some of them was over-enthusiastic and some was excited and some was fearful to them because some had more mouth than they had sense and some had more sense than they had mouth. They were other people's children, but we became family, too. They didn't take no adjustment. They knew what they were doing, and we were, we were trying to find out what we were doing, and we had some know-how, and all of us had a little education uh, that was working with it. Some didn't have degrees, but they had common sense, and some had their own businesses, so they were running it, but they didn't operate for us. We operated, and they operated alongside us, and if we needed something, there was always somebody who knew somebody they could get it from. Living conditions were abysmal. White threats of violence ran rampant. But SNCC and the Lowndes County Christian Movement 
they found a way to chart a path forward. We'll be right back. So by now, maybe you can visualize the bleakness of Black political representation in Lowndes County, where we remind you 80% of residents are Black. You didn't have any Black officers. You didn't have any Black positions in the county except school teachers. And they had a white superintendent education. The thing I learned, particularly out of Lowndes County, was there was no demonstrating You'd take your life in your hands if you demonstrated. There was no appealing to the local authorities. There was no appealing to the federal government. And as Stokely Carmichael said, we have to go for power. That's Terry Cannon. And you heard from him earlier talking about Election Day. Terry was one of the few white organizers in Lowndes. He worked as a SNCC field secretary during the 1966 election, but he was also Stokely's bodyguard on that day of revolutionary change. Pastor Aaron McCall was born and raised in Lowndes County. He remembers this shift in thought pretty well. It would be the birth of Black power. Talking about minority rule, you know, the power and the seat of power was being handled by the few whites that was here, you know, and blacks were kept out of the political process. But when Stokely started talking about black power, and he was talking about the power of the ballot, the power of the vote, that weak outnumbered them. And I remember him telling in, in a mass meeting once he said that they ain't got no business or, or being in any office, you know, if we would get our people registered and our people out to the vote. And none of them should be in any office because we've got a enough votes among our people that we could always keep them voted out of office unless we just want to put them in there, uh, something like that. Slowly but surely, this new idea for change, it really started to sink in with the Black residents of Lowndes, and the possibilities started to materialize, and the movement started to mobilize. And they started to slowly listen and get on board. While not every resident was on board because there was still this fear. Like, people knew, like, if I, when I tried to register to vote, I may get evicted. If I was lucky enough to have a college education and be a school teacher and have a job, then there was the possibility of me losing my job because the superintendent was white, school board was all white. But then sneak organizers, Carmichael and Bob Mann, started to, to tell residents that, you know, you could take over the school board. You could be the superintendent. Um, and then you won't have this fear about losing your job because you're exercising and standing in your full political potential, right? So that message started to slowly resonate with the residents here in Lowndes County. And so they realized, you know, maybe we should run for office. Like, maybe we should get registered to vote. Maybe we should have our own nominating convention to pick our own slate of candidates. But they also realized, well, we can't do that as Democrats. Yeah, as Stokely Carmichael said, we, we're going to take over this county. So we're not going for anything less. We, we intend to seize power. And that was essentially the first important project that embodied the concept of Black power. Seize power. Black power. That was the goal of SNCC and the Black residents of Lowndes. 
people had no one to vote for. Okay, we're going to vote for... <laughs> then you have to vote for the racist Democrats. But the SNCC researcher, Jack Minnis, discovered this law in Alabama that said you could start a third party. Jack Minnis, SNCC's head of research, found a law tucked away in the annals of Alabama's legislative history that allowed the formation of a new party at the county level. This gave Blacks in Lowndes a chance to form their own party and more crucially, run their own primary. Okay, Roy, we'll get into all that, but I have to tell you about another part of this law. It actually said that each party had to have a mascot. And then there was this idea, well, if we're going to have our own political party, because every political party has to have a logo, right? Because of the illiteracy rates in the state, so that people who could not read could at least identify the symbol. Then it's like, what will our symbol be? The Democratic Party in Alabama at the time was still the party of white supremacy. They still had a white rooster as their political logo. The Republicans had the elephant, and they were looking for some, I guess, another animal or something to, to, to go along with it, to put to put on as, as a political mascot. <laughs> I can't stop laughing, Eunice, every time I think about that chicken Democrat. This new political party helped give rise to the idea of Black power. Now, if you're going to have a mascot, it might as well be one that would, well, eat all the other mascots alive. Black Panther. 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 I know you've heard about the Black Panther, you know, and this is this is our story, you know. The Black Panthers movement, the name and all, was constituted right here at First Baptist Church. The Lowndes County Freedom Party, they needed a mascot. And there was a man by the name of Andrew Jones who lived in Calhoun. And he and his wife were at the meeting. And Mr. Jones fell off and went to sleep. That and it was the meeting that dragged on, you know. They usually meet around five o'clock in the afternoon. And the meeting just grabbed on and, and dragged on and he went to sleep. And when he went to sleep, he started to snoring, you know, and, and he took a real deep breath, you know. And when he came out, he just <sighs> and his wife punched him in the, sh in, in, in the side to wake him up. And said, like, wake up over here, so breathing like an old panther, you know. And when he said, breathing like an old panther, when she said that, Stoker Cockmichael said, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. And and they chose the name Black Panther, you know. And of course, Mr. Jones, if you ever got to meet him, he was a very, very dark man, you know. When they chose the name Black Panther, and of course, the rest is history. Now, for the record, they chose the Black Panther for more reasons than Andrew Jones' mighty snore. And that choice would ripple throughout the movement, clear to the other side of the country. I mean, just think about what the Panther represents, you know. Number one, he is sleek, you know, precision. He's strong and he's fierce. And then he was black and we black and he represented us. For us, it represented freedom. It represented freedom. And it went, like I said, from here to California, you know, all over. John Hewlett, he's quoted as saying that they thought about a symbol and they picked the symbol of the Black Panther because he said that the panther is not necessarily an aggressive animal, but when backed into a corner, it's going to come out fighting. And he said that as Black people in Lowndes County, they had been backed into a corner long enough. And now this was their chance to come out fighting. So they picked that symbol 
And then they had their own nominating convention in May of 1966. And by November of 1966, they had their slate of candidates who were ready to run for office. The nominating convention, the campaigning, and the election day results? That's next time on Panther. And every time one of them voted, and that was their first time voting, right? And every time one would vote, you know, they would do like a kind of little dance, a little jig, or throw their hands up or something. Then I've done it, you know, I I participated, you know, I'm a real citizen kind of thing. I mean, it was, like I say, it was a very, very prideful day. Panther is produced by Reckon Radio in partnership with Pod People. It's hosted by me, Roy S. Johnson. And me, Eunice Elliott. Our executive producer is John Hammondry with additional writing, reporting, and production for Reckon by Isaiah Murtaugh, Sarah White's Kodischek, and R.L. Nave. Special thanks to Kelly Scott, Katie Johnson, Minda Honey, Abby Crane, and Tom Bates. And at Pod People, Ann Fuse, Alec McManus, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, John Asante, and Carter Wogan. Our theme music is composed by Jelani Akil Bowman. Head to Reckon.News to learn more about the events featured in today's episode. And please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. <laughs>